Hello and welcome to another episode of PharmaSense Podcasts. My name is Aisha Rose and I'm the host for this episode. A little about my clinical background. I am a clinical pharmacist in primary care, specialising as both a PCN pharmacist and general practice pharmacist. Some of my roles in PharmaSense are as education and training executive and head of public relations. Today's episode is slightly different, but one we hope you all enjoy. The team are honoured to have a very special guest joining me today to give you all an insight into the world of health inequalities, EME and EDI. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Habib Nakvi, MBE, Director of the NHS Race and Health Observatory, a reverse mentor for the NHS Chief Executive, Sir Simon Stevens, and a trustee for the Mary Seacole Trust. Now I could continue with this list for hours, so instead of that, let me hand over with a very warm welcome to our guest, Dr. Habib Nakvi. Thank you for having me, Aisha. It's a pleasure to be uh, on your podcast. Thank you for joining us. We're very grateful and excited to hear from you. So, I guess the best place to start is tell us a little more about yourself. We know how many wonderful things you are doing and what you have been up to, but how does it all begin? My background, actually, my father was a community pharmacist. And so my interest has always been in science and social science, which is why I chose to focus on health psychology and psychology at university. I did a degree in Bristol at Bristol University and then went on to do a PhD looking at predictive genetic testing. So that's kind of my kind of educational background. It's very much kind of embedded within science and social science. Wow, so you're not just part of the health family, you're part of the pharmacy family. So that's fantastic to know. So your PhD sounds very different to what your undergraduate was. What led you down that route? Well, one of the things I was particularly interested in was cardiovascular disease and its disproportionate impact upon South Asian communities. And a lot of re- research at the time, uh, I'm talking about the kind of mid-2000s you know, now, was done around lifestyle change but very little focus placed upon looking at genetics and genetic testing and predictive genetic testing for the key risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And I was curious, I guess, to know what would be the implications of having such an intervention for South Asian communities. And of course, now we've got, since then, the genomic project. We've had a lot written within the latest NHS guidelines around the NHS long-term plan around genetics and genomic sequencing. But my curiosity was, would people from the South Asian background take this up as an intervention? And so that was the kind of the basis for the PhD. Sort of been there from the start when this journey of looking into genetics began, because like you said, lifestyle was always factored as being the reason for all these inequalities in BME populations. And now we've got things like genetics and we're looking at, for example, structural issues and populations not having the same access to healthcare. So you've definitely been there from the very start. So once you'd completed your PhD, how did you enter the health and social care world? Well, my first job as I finished at university was to work in public health in Bristol. And it was, in fact, to look at access to primary care services for South Asian patients with cardiovascular disease. And we did a lot of work there in collaboration uh, with the NHS Bristol. And one of the things that we focused on was access to thrombolysis uh, among South Asian patients, uh, the differential presentation of chest pain um, for people experiencing uh, myocardial infarction, and I guess the stratification of access to treatment um, once they reach the hospital. So there was a lot of kind of work that we did looking at access to care. As you mentioned, Aisha, a, a lot, you know, some of the reasons for the differentiation could be looked at, the way that healthcare is designed, the way that healthcare is yeah. kind of offered uh, and then taken up as well. So we looked at some of those structural issues and factors leading to differential care, uh, differential access experience, and I guess outcomes as well. I guess it's very interesting because I work in primary care and we run these clinics for hypertension and cardiovascular so regularly now 
but quite scary to think that actually 15, 20 years ago, these did not exist. And there were so many people, especially from BME backgrounds, who weren't being picked up and who were struggling or having severe health problems due to their hypertension not being picked up or having an angina and not actually realising what was going on because they didn't have access to go to the doctors or be able to drop into one of these clinics. It's a bit of both, isn't it? Are the community open to these different ideas? And what can the NHS do in developing these ideas? That's absolutely true. And I mean, I've seen it through friends and family that have endured, unfortunately, chest pain, um, not knowing the symptoms for a heart attack. And you know, raising the knowledge of accessing healthcare is really important. We've seen it starkly, I guess, at the beginning of the latest pandemic that we've got, the COVID-19 yeah. pandemic, in terms of, I guess, the lack of information around health uh, protection that was put out very early on um, during March and April of this year um, around the pandemic. Um, but there is a lot of work to be done around making sure that mm. our services are not only diverse, but inclusive and increase access levels for all parts of our communities. I think that's really important concept of being inclusive. And like you said, with COVID-19, it's shown on so much more. And accessibility, like you've also said, many people in ethnic backgrounds aren't aware of symptoms of health conditions. And it does make you wonder why leaflets or videos or the PR side wasn't branched out to show information in different languages earlier on. Now, we've had bits of this here and there, but during COVID, this has shown through a lot more. You have such senior NHS professionals were putting videos out and Twitter in different languages to actually be able to get that message across to the wider health population. So, again, it's not just all about equality because we could give everybody the same leaflet, but it's making sure everybody understands it and adapting to each person, which I think we've really been able to see in a different light during COVID with how the message has been put across in different languages and different ways to meet these communities. And that's true. I was quite taken back in March of this year when I realised that equality, diversity and inclusion wasn't really being paid the full attention that it needed and deserved. I guess in a way people would argue that when a health service as big as ours moves out of working in the norm to working in an emergency situation, then quality, diversity and inclusion you know, may go kind of on the back burner. But I was very surprised on how quickly it went on the back burner. And we wrote a paper looking at the challenges and providing some recommendations for action around how the health service should be tackling head on the issues for black and minority ethnic uh, communities and healthcare staff during the COVID-19 pandemic. And as a result of that paper, which went to the chief executive of the NHS, uh, a number of pieces of work have been taken forward, including the protection of staff, um, including looking at very important issues such as representation at senior levels for emergency response. Um, as well as looking at rehabilitation and recovery of our healthcare staff. And as you mentioned, Aisha, looking also at the media, uh, not only the content of the media and what was being said around this particular issue around the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Black and minority ethnic communities and healthcare staff, but also who was giving out that message. Because very early on, it, you know, the media output wasn't as diverse, perhaps, as it is now. So a lot of work has taken place over the last uh, eight months or so. And we hope that that can be embedded uh, in terms of the day-to-day -day working of the NHS going forward. I don't think you could have put it any better. And I guess with having senior figures like yourselves, who people from BME communities can look up to, I guess it brings it back to if you hadn't gone through this career progression and journey to be able to create such papers to get them noticed, there would have been a lot of people who would not have been protected as much during COVID, who would not have had these safety and risk assessments done. My question is, how did you actually get to this point? So we know you joined the Department of Health and Social Care, we know how you got there, but you've been so core towards the Mary Seacole Trust, the King's Fund and all these research papers. How did you get from 
that point and be able to put this purpose forward and be able to make this change with your work with the workforce raising inequality in the NHS and now you are the director of the race and health observatory so how are you able to make that journey up? So there's I guess a level of uh, intent uh, and ambition within myself to make sure that I can focus on the matters and the issues that, that touch people uh, and our black and minority ethnic communities in particular out within the communities uh, and our staff um, as well. I've seen friends, I've seen very close family that have very sadly passed away uh, because of, um, I guess, the health service not always being on the front foot with some of these uh, and proactive with some of these um, issues. And that's why uh, the work I've done at the Department of Health and Social Care around equality and inclusion more generally, but also uh, more recently, the work around workforce race equality uh, within the NHS um, is so important because if we don't get uh, our workforce right, i.e. an engaged representative workforce at all levels, including, of course, at senior uh, leadership levels, then we will not be able to best serve the diverse communities that we have within uh, within our country. And it's very important that we focus on that because the agenda of racial equality is not just to make sure that we have more BME people at senior levels, and that's great, and that's wonderful, and we need to do that. But there are other key reasons for this, including, of course, um, better outcomes for our patients. And that relationship between representatives and happy staff and and better outcomes for our patients is, is well established and well researched. But there is also efficiency savings that the NHS can make and some of the work that we uh, asked the King's Fund to do for us outlines how having a more diverse workforce leads to better um, or more efficient healthcare services and healthcare organizations. And then of course, we also know that if we're in the business of reducing health inequalities, which we are, then we need a workforce that is absolutely representative at all levels. And that includes on the boards of our NHS organizations as well. Having a diverse workforce is so important because what we forget is the people who are on these boards or or in these senior groups, they are making the decisions for the patients and the wider people. So the people walking into the hospitals and not everybody on these boards matches the patient who's coming into that hospital. So thinking from a patient perspective, how can these people relate to me or what my needs are? How would they how can they best treat me if they don't understand me, my lifestyle or my background? And I do think the work that you've done with Res and you have an amazing track record individually and during your time there in achieving change and the influence you've had, because there's many places who actually even 18 months ago didn't have BME groups or didn't actually think there was a race issue between the workforce or for patients. And the work Res has done has really addressed these inequalities and made a difference. We're at a point where things are progressing. Obviously, you've gone from res and we've got COVID-19 and it's really shown on these health inequalities. And obviously, we had the Public Health England document as well on the disparities and the risks and the outcomes of COVID-19. So it's just we keep going through this cycle of identifying issues. And I feel like for the first time in a long time, we're at a point where change is being made. And you actually are quite literally at the centre of this change that's going to hopefully be made with how quickly the Race and Health Observatory has come about. Now, we did speak around the time the PHE document came out. How do you feel these changes can be made? And we've got these core figures at the front, but will it quickly die down again and we won't hear much about these inequalities, how we're going to address them and make change? Yeah, that's a, a very good question, um, Aisha. I think when people when well, often say that they are now woke to these racial issues, and of course we've had covid We've got COVID-19 at the moment. We've had Black Lives Matter and various other kind of key milestones around race equality. I always say to myself, if we're still or if they're still awake this time next year, then we'll be in a good place. So the challenge is, of course, to um, keep people awake to these issues. And with the NHS Race and Health Observatory, I think for the first time in the history of the NHS, we've got a real opportunity 
to look at the root causes, the the, the structural deep-seated issues that lead to some of the health inequalities that we uh, that that we're all too familiar with, unfortunately now amongst our black and minority ethnic communities, and of course the experiences of our black and minority ethnic NHS uh, workforce as well. But the idea, I guess, Aisha, of a body or a observatory that brings together research uh, and reviews and evidence and turns that into uh, crisp and, and robust recommendations for the system. And then, uniquely so, supports the NHS and systems and organisations on the ground to implement those recommendations is yes. something that, that has been talked about. It's something that has been talked about for a number of years, but it wasn't until the BMJ publication, Special Edition, on racism in medicine earlier this year, in February yeah. of this year, that a robust uh, and a concrete argument for the establishment of a race and health observatory was made. And at the launch of that special edition in February at the BMA House in London, uh, Sir Simon Stevens absolutely gave his support and endorsement for the establishment of uh, of the observatory. And the fact is that ethnic differences are evident in relation to service provision, access, experience and outcomes in as diverse range of areas, including, as I mentioned before, genetic testing and genetic counselling, artificial intelligence and maternal health. And yes, these disparities are set against a higher prevalence of numerous health conditions, including cancers, specific cancers uh, for BME, amongst BME populations. We've mentioned cardiovascular disease and diabetes. There's also mental illness and mental health issues. And of course, uh, maternity health as well. And some of the statistics that we see day in, day out around some of these conditions and diseases are absolutely striking. And of course, as you mentioned before, Aisha, we've seen this year the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on our BME, Black and Minority Ethnic communities and healthcare workers, which has, I guess, shone yet another light on the ethnic disparities that we see within society. So there is an urgency in terms of you know, getting things done. And I guess if a race and health observatory would have been fully established and operational back in March and April of this year, we may have been slightly more on the front foot in terms of tackling some of the challenges that we now see emerging for our BME communities. But I guess our country and our organisation is well-placed to focus on this level of urgency because you know, we've got a long history of migration uh, in this country. We've got well-established, right. and I guess, growing BME communities. We've got robust legal frameworks in the Equality Act and in the health inequalities duties. And you know, we've always had high levels of investment in health research within the UK. But at the same time, uh, we also know that responses to ethnic health inequalities to date have often been fragmented and I guess confused and costly to some extent as well. And whilst specialist units, think tanks and you know missions have been set up to look at these issues, they have largely focused upon theoretical data collection exercises and not really focus on the implementation or the supporting of organizations in uh, transforming the deep-seated, deep-rooted issues that we see within, uh, within the health service and within our communities. And that's why the NHS Race and Health Observatory will actually work towards transforming those disproportionate impacts that race and ethnicity is having on our patients and our communities and on our on our staff as we go forward. With what you said, there's a lot of theoretical data on how we can implement it. And yes, if the Race and Health Observatory was in March, would it, things have been different? If you did look at the statistics for COVID-19 and the BME communities, there was shocking figures in that people in highly populated ethnic areas, say London, had much higher death rates. And we know these areas have a lot of research going into them and for many, many years. And is 
I guess, is it that the problem is that we keep doing research and we're trying to look into things, but we've never actually gone to the ground to try and find out how these communities would like things to be approached or how we can implement changes. And again, we've said we've got this very large migration into the country. We have people from here from like three, four generations ago, if you even look back into our families. But again, COVID-19, if we look at statistics there, the figures were showing that those who were born outside of England actually had a higher death rate during COVID. And again, with the NHS staff as well, there was this disproportionate effect and impact on them. And before this assessment came through, there were so many at the front. And if we look at the BME staff who passed away, sadly, and we lost all of these lives during COVID, there would have been such a big change if we had something like the Race and Health Observatory sooner. I know we want to obviously try and move forward and learn from these changes. And I think something that Prona Isar, the chief people officer, said was that to move forward, we need a concerted effort. And yes, COVID-19 brought this all into stark relief. But now it's about moving forward and how we can tackle the inequalities faced in these ethnic groups, because the gravity of the issue is much more than we think. And I guess it's how much work needs to be done. So from your side, how long or how much behind the scene work needs to occur before we can start seeing changes from the work the Race and Health Observatory are doing? Well, the first thing to keep in mind around any work around race inequality is to acknowledge that it's a system-wide issue. It's a, it's, a, it's a global issue that requires a system-wide and global response. So when we look at, for example, as the, the latest reports from Public Health England and from various other organisations and bodies have highlighted, that there are issues around housing, there are issues around various other kind of access to care and various other kind of issues, structural issues that kind of increase the risk of disease and infection levels. Um, but I guess you have to ask yourself, why is it that black and minority ethnic people find themselves in you know, poorer housing, you know, less likely uh, to be in higher levels of occupation and earning more money? Um, why is there more likely to be uh, differential attainment uh, within the education system. So we need to look at the root causes of these. And of course, the NHS has a role to play, but it's not the only kind of player in this particular arena. So we need to have a concerted, um, but a joined up and collaborative approach uh, to the issues that we see. And yes, the Race and Health Observatory is an observatory and whilst observing will be an important aspect of the work. The observatory is not intended to be purely passive um, in its function. So it will be a proactive investigator that will provide strong messages to inform policy decisions and to support organisations in implementing those. Uh, I always say that the observatory will, yes, observe, but it will also speak and it will also act as well. And so those three aspects will be absolutely essential uh, for us to make uh, robust, meaningful and sustained impact on these issues. And the other kind of aspect to mention here, Aisha, is the fact that the observatory is independent. And that's really important because people need to be confident in the independence of the research and the reviews. They need to be confident in the independence and objectivity of the recommendations and the support being provided. No longer, I believe, the NHS can set its own exam question and mark its own exam paper on this agenda. We need a mirror being held up to the NHS as opposed to the NHS holding up a mirror to itself on these critical issues. What's very important, what you've said, is the speaking and acting, because as we go back to what we said previously, Dr Nakvi, in we keep highlighting issues, but then we go around in this cycle and I guess maybe that is where this change is now going to happen if we are going to speak and act. And again, what you said, it's not just health, it's access to housing, to schooling, better education. So will the Race and Health Observatory be working with people outside of the NHS, for example, local councils or local education services? You have an academic background. Is there any hope in the future for you to be bringing this work into that aspect of your life? Well, we will certainly be liaising with working in partnership and collaboration with other parts of the system beyond health and social care in order to tackle some of these issues. And in fact, in my work on workforce race equality, 
uh, I have started doing that um, in relation to working with a number of medical schools across the country where we're looking at issues such as diversifying the curriculum uh, that's being taught, but also diversifying the uh, the people that deliver the curriculum uh, and looking at things such as the lecturers and the professors representative of the student populations in general. So there is a lot of work to be done, not just downstream, but upstream as well, in order for us to make sure that we have, as I mentioned before, you know, a sustained and meaningful change on this agenda and not just covering kind of uh, the cracks in the plaster, but really looking at the kind of the root causes of what's causing those cracks in the first place. And something you've highlighted there, diversifying the curriculum, it's very apparent. And I think coming from a pharmacy background or having friends who have come from medicine or dentistry, this health educational background, it was very rare to come across patients in simulations or in teaching just pictures of health conditions that actually would appear on skin that's like mine or skin of other BME groups if we bring it back if you speak as well there was so much outcry on Twitter during the Covid pandemic and even now again during the second peak that it's so hard to highlight the conditions facing the BME communities because the pictures or the education we were shown was not on that skin so diversifying the curriculum is pivotal to us moving forward to educate the youth now I know you're a trustee from the Mary Seacole Trust how has your work been and how do you feel like the Mary Seacole Trust can have an impact with this development of BME and EDI work? Well, at the Mary Seacole Trust charity, we're working on educating the public uh, as well as healthcare staff around these issues. There is a, a large educational uh, work stream and element within the Trust's work programme that will be absolutely focused on this uh, agenda. But, I mean, you mentioned a, a key thing, um, Aisha. Only yesterday I was on a con- at a conference and where there was a lot of discussion around skin conditions and how different et- ethnic groups present in terms of their skin conditions, depending upon the level of kind of pigmentation within the skin. I mean, that kind of knowledge needs to be within our health uh, medical textbooks because if it's not then we will not be able to focus on reducing the health inequalities that we see amongst our diverse communities and that's that's really important and it's really kind of timely now as well as we are kind of heading towards looking at a vaccine for COVID-19 and of course looking at what the potential uptake levels of those vaccines may be as a result of kind of confidence levels amongst communities for it. So we need to be kind of on the front foot. That's where I hope the work of the NHS Race and Health Observatory can really focus its attention. That's very important what you said about the confidence of the communities because I think for a very long time, I actually can say this personally myself, BME communities have kept things in their head and they've felt like they've been treated differently or they have been disproportionately affected, but they've been hesitant to raise it because these inequalities were never shown on before and they were very much like, no, it doesn't exist. And it was in a way you were just made to sort of be quiet. But as awful as COVID is, it's actually been able to bring up these issues and there's more and more people who are voicing their concerns from these communities and backgrounds regarding the vaccine and not feeling that they are able to trust the vaccines and yes there's conspiracy theories with everything um there's obviously we've hearing vaccine related theories about microchips and it's very easy to think that's the reason but I, I really believe that we need to get to the root and the issue here is the lack of trust because of how badly the BME communities have been treated like you said we need to build on this trust now I know you're doing a lot of work in this area you were on the radio the other day as well how do you feel do you feel like there's a impact already occurring from these talks do you think we can get to a point where we're able to build on this trust for the BME communities to trust where we are moving forward with COVID and the vaccine? Well I think Aisha there's a lot of work to be done in terms of building trust within community around uh, these interventions and particularly so now with regards to forthcoming vaccines for COVID-19 and some of this is is related to the strategic 
kind of direction of travel um, and input in terms of the work that will be done. And much of this work needs to be done kind of bottom up as opposed to top down. We need to empower our communities and community leaders to focus on these particular issues amongst themselves with the the right information um, uh, in order for us to kind of really kind of penetrate the uh, the communities with the right messages, with the right knowledge base uh, and factual information around, for example, the efficacy of the vaccines once they are um, with us. So it's really important that we focus on those particular issues. But some of this work will also need to look at things such as demonstrable leadership right from the top and representative leadership as well. So, for example, the people that will be giving out and administering the vaccines need to be um, representative of the communities that they will be working with in terms of administering the vaccines on a day-to-day basis. And just going back to that point about working from the bottom up, it's not just from the top, it's what we spoke about the other day, Dr Nakvi. It's very important we work with the local communities and their leaders. We forget this impact that the local community leaders have with the communities. And for us to actually make change, we've now highlighted these issues. But for us to make this efficient change, we need to listen and hear what is wanted and how these community members want us to implement the change and how exactly we want to work forward. And like you've said, we need to have people who look like the people we're giving the vaccines to. Because, for example, it's if you are getting a vaccine and you don't, you aren't fluent in English, having somebody who can speak your language and to answer those questions if you are hesitant, it's going to be so much more beneficial than trying to give somebody a jab and they're getting very upset or they don't want it and they can't, you can't communicate together. And I guess that does again come back to what you've said about from the top up, we need to have leaders who represent us because only then will they be able to highlight these concerns. You've been able to highlight these concerns, but you are a leader who represents the rest of us. And I guess up until now, we've never really had that. I guess it's not rocket science. Uh, we've all seen health uh, health promotion programmes that have uh, that have focused and embedded themselves within local communities and where you know, local religious leaders are giving out uh, these health messages uh, as part of their uh, weekly sermons uh, to their congregations. And those approaches, those community approaches, going out into the community and embedding these messages within the community is absolutely, absolutely essential. I mean, we were slightly on the back foot as a health service, I guess, right from the kind of in terms of the outset of the pandemic, where you know, that level of community engagement, the bottom-up approach wasn't, um, as prominent um, as it's perhaps getting now. So we need to be kind of focused on this particular agenda, particularly as we go in, as I said, over the next uh, months and I guess years in terms of the vaccine for COVID-19. And how we go into it is incredibly important because it's not just focusing on those who are here, it's going back to what you said before about diversifying the curriculum and the people who are delivering this curriculum. If we look at universities, we look at the health groups or we look at the people involved in the research and the science, in a few years' time, they will be out at the forefront. So if we want to make this change moving forward, it needs to be also occurring in the universities. And something that comes to mind here is a comment that Sir Simon Stevens made when the Race and Health Observatory was made, that yes, ethnicity and race have shown to have a systematic influence on health, But for change to occur, the health service has to listen and lead. And yes, the observatory is called to provide these suggestions. But I guess from my perspective and a lot of my peers and other students, it's actually this doesn't just apply to the observatory. This applies to healthcare education. Now, whether this be when I was an undergraduate or now as a postgraduate and not just in pharmacy, be it medicine, nursing, we have a wide range of healthcare professional listeners. Many will also agree and have contacted us about this, that we need to act for change to occur and we can't incur the cycle of identifying and it's still we need to be able to address the curriculums and address how we are reaching these points to be able to implement change. Now I'm not sure if you're aware there's actually a medical student at St George's University named Malone. During Covid he actually 
has created a website called Black and Brown Skin and created a book called Mind the Gap. St. George's website classes it as being decolonizing the curriculum. Now, many healthcare professionals and students, when they've seen this book and they've seen the different pictures and what it's done is shown different health conditions and different skin, it's actually the first time so many of us come across these pictures. We've never had this at university. Those of us who have had it, it's been very rare. And I guess it's going back. It's not just educating those around us right now. It's how do we tackle the issues that we have in the universities to actually incorporate this into the medical and health curriculums? That's a, yeah, I mean, there's a lot there, Aisha, but I think there's something fundamental here, isn't there? There's something about, you know, how can a person uh, be a leader if he or she only leads for some of their workforce rather than leading for all of their workforce? And what we do know, if we go right back to uh, to to our history books, is that black and minority ethnic people have made, and I guess continue to make, a significant contribution to our NHS and to our healthcare services in in this country. We just need to look at the uh, two people behind the COVID nineteen vaccine who have kind of developed it are from a BME background, and of course. You know, right from the onset of the NHS and the inception of the NHS in 1948, all the way to ultimate sacrifices that BME staff are giving throughout this pandemic. And in all of the years in between those two points, you know, there is a huge amount of contribution, uh, acknowledgement and celebration, something that we don't do often enough within within our society and something that we should really be focused on as we go forward and we have made strides i would say in terms of increasing representation at senior levels uh, i just think back to when we started on the workforce race equality program you know at that time in 2014 only two-fifths of the nhs trusts across london had a BME person on the board. And now the latest figures, which we kind of published earlier this year, every single NHS hospital trust in London had at least one BME person on their board. So yes, we are making some inroads, but there is a lot more work to be done because we haven't kind of cracked this particular challenge. And there is a lot more work to be done. But I always say, Aisha, that we need to be persistent. Yes, of course. But we also need to be patient on this agenda as well, because when we look at the causes, the structural causes, the deep-seated, deep-rooted issue around this agenda, we think back to the, you know, the the discrimination and yes, racism that we see within our society, which has taken four hundred years, I guess, to get us to a place where we are. I think that and transforming that isn't going to happen in. You know, one year or two years or even five years. It will take time. But the good news is that we are on the right road. We are focused on this agenda and we are absolutely committed to making sure that we can you know, tackle it head on. Dr Nakvi, a key point you touch on there that is commonly overlooked is that the structural racism and these issues, they are not new. They have been around for over 400 plus years. So evidently change will take time. But an example that shows change is happening and is prominent is that people are becoming more confident to raise these issues and are becoming more confident in voicing their concerns and what they see or what they are feeling. If you put it back to a year ago, I don't think me being so newly qualified would be actually being comfortable to have this conversation with you. And I guess that's showing exactly how far we've come across, especially during these last eight, nine months during 2020 and the COVID pandemic, where we have these senior figures such as yourself who have shown the light on these issues where the younger professionals or the younger students are able to actually talk about it more openly. And I think although it may seem small, it's actually crucial to the change that we are going to see because if more and more of us are able to talk about it, we can educate those around us. Now, I'm sure you've seen that, yes, we've been talking and we've been seeing all these headlines, we need more BME people in leadership positions, but there's been a lot of backlash and people saying that actually it should be those who deserve it now from what I've seen myself or what I've read about in articles or publications is and what people seem to be forgetting is actually there is a lot of BME people who deserve to be at these positions but have been overlooked because of this structural issue and 
obviously you've been very lucky to get to this position being at the forefront you will have seen this yourself and I guess what's your view and intake on this well the issue Aisha is is this we know that there are few black and minority ethnic people at senior levels across uh, the NHS in fact not just the NHS but across all parts of uh, society. Now, there can only be, I say, two potential kind of reasons for that. One, that black and minority people are not good enough. Or two, that there's something wrong in the way that our recruitment processes, our development processes are structured in that they kind of lead to the the structural barriers or the glass ceilings that we often see and encounter. And I would like to think that it's the latter um, rather than the former, because in my work, I've come across talented black and minority ethnic people. I've come across porters with PhDs, but they're not being given the chance to work in, in an area where they can flourish and they can showcase the immense skills and experiences and knowledge that they have. So, what we need to do, yes, we need more people at senior levels, absolutely, but we also need a culture within our organisations that is inclusive and will kind of foster those, uh, the diversity that we will have in terms of numbers. And that's really important. The other important bit to remember here is a point that you just touched on earlier on, Aisha, is that uh, you know, we don't, we haven't historically, I guess, been talking about the deep-seated you know, the issues, the, the root causes. And some of that is racism, it's discrimination. It's a way that, I guess, society is perfectly designed to give us exactly what we've got. And that has kind of evolved over, not decades, but centuries. So in order to transform that, we need to be persistent, as I said, but we need to do things differently in order to get a different outcome and for for decades within the NHS we've expected our black and minority ethnic people to stand up and to talk about their lived experience of what it means or what it feels to be yeah. a BME person within an organization what we haven't done is to turn that around 360 degrees yeah. and to talk about what it may mean or may, what it may feel to be to be white and to have privilege within not just our NHS, but within society as a whole. And until we have those open and transparent conversations, until we are comfortable with the uncomfortable, then we will not be able to shift the dial of inequality that we see within our health service, but within society as a whole. And what we know from the workforce race equality standard data is that in general, not always the case, but in general, those organisations that tend to do better on their race equality indicators and data are organisations where very typically your white middle class male chief executive is able to stand up in front of a room full of BME staff and have those open conversations in a transparent way and not be kind of tongue-tied as to what to say, what not to say, but to be on that learning journey, that reciprocal learning journey with their staff. You really hit the nail on the head there. And I think what you touched on with privilege, it's become a taboo thing that we're trying to put blame on others, but actually it's not because the whole concept of this white privilege and being able to try and understand your BME communities, your BME friends, colleagues, is to, to see what they are going through. And I think a good example of saying is actually some of us within BME have privilege, say in comparison to my great, great, great grandfather, I will be in a better position. I think statistics show that, that those who weren't born in England or Ireland had worse outcomes in, during COVID shows that. So we're not trying to put the blame on others. And I think that's, there's this problem where we need to highlight that is to work together and how we can move forward together to understand and overcome these issues. Now, that actually may be one of the hardest parts to move forward is to get everybody sort of on the same page to understand it's a fight that we need to work against together and it's nobody who's being put at blame. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, 
what I often say is that this agenda, which is a very complex and tricky agenda, I have to say, um, is an it should be an agenda that is not just the the burden of those that are most affected by it. Uh, everyone has a role to play because getting this right will have a positive impact on the whole of society. Uh, and we need we need allies, of course. Yes, we do need allies, and we need everybody to on this important agenda. But because we have a choice, I guess you know we can either be passive bystanders to this agenda, or we can come together and be active agents of change to tackle you know those very root causes of racial inequality that we see, not just within the NHS but more widely as well. So you know coming together is an absolute kind of essential point. And that's where, you know, talking about your lived experience as a BME person or talking about your lived experience as a non-BME white person and sharing your experiences is really important. And the comment you've made there about the burden on those affected and coming together, it's also really, I guess to me, it's you do see a lot of comments that we're focusing on BME communities more than anything else. And what about other issues, say women who are not being put into leadership positions, but it's about coming together. We know these problems exist and we are trying to work on bringing more women into leadership and having more women in these chief executive positions. But it's the BME community's issue has not actually been raised enough. And it's, I guess, bringing it's equity, highlighting the same scope on each person, each issue and bringing them all up equally. Now, I know that's going to be very difficult to move forward. And I think even if I look at some of the EDI groups I've been in, that is a reoccurring question that actually, if you're just focusing on BME, what about the other classified characteristics or the other problems that we are facing in equality? How do you advise people who are being thrown these questions and being asked why BME is as important or why shouldn't it be put to the back and other things prioritised? What advice would you give? Well, there's a number of points to be raised there, really. Firstly is that the evidence around the level of discrimination uh, in terms of opportunity, lack of opportunities and poorer experiences within the workplace is absolutely strong for black and minority and ethnic staff within the NHS. We see it through data from the NHS annual NHS staff survey. We see it through the res data that's collected on an annual basis. So, I mean, the evidence base is there. We were convinced in 2014, 15, that it was a strong enough evidence to have a concerted focus on race and race equality. And we, we, we remain convinced now, and we're beginning to make inroads, Aisha, on this agenda. It would be wrong for us now, to having raised the hopes of so many people within the service around this agenda, that we stop, you know, having that concerted focus on race. That's the first point. The second point is that we need to have a timetabled approach to looking at all of the protected characteristics. We're starting with race, of course, because that is the most pressing, where the data tell us is the most pressing matter. And for anybody who's in doubt of that, just look at the disproportionate impact that COVID-19 is having on our BME communities and healthcare staff, you know, a huge proportion of which, you know, have sadly given the ultimate sacrifice and sadly died as a result of the pandemic. So we know that of the evidence, what we now need, as we've highlighted earlier, including through the, you know, the ambitions of the NHS Race and Health Observatory, is action, because more than words, we need deeds. Um, and if we can focus on that, then I think we'll be in a good place. You also mentioned the kind of the issue of equity, and I totally agree with that. I'm a big fan of the concept of proportionate universalism, i.e. looking at uh, those aspects of society or, for example, the workforce that need the most support and concerted focus and raising the inequality gradient as a result of focusing on them, but also raising that bar for everyone at the same time so that we can have a positive impact for all parts of society, all parts of the NHS workforce. And it goes back to the Equality Act. It goes back to the notion of fostering good relations between groups so nobody feels left out. That's the underlying foundations of the work that I've been doing on 
workforce race equality or with regards to another policy that we developed way back in 2012 called the Equality Delivery System. And it will be the basis of the work that we do uh, going forward as well. Your comment on raising the inequality gradient now, I know you've said you're working with medical schools in their curriculums. What I wanted to highlight here was if you look at a lot of healthcare professions and you look at their professional bodies, there's more and more information in the last 12 to 18 months that we're seeing that actually BME professionals are being brought to fitness to practice hearings more than other people or BME hearings are actually longer or they're being picked up on a lot smaller issues that actually maybe their white colleague wouldn't have to go through. From your experience of working in medical schools, what advice can you give to these professional bodies or other health courses and how to have better guidance or how to approach these situations better so they're not unintentionally discriminating those from the BME backgrounds? There's there's three aspects to focus on here with regards to that because it's a complex kind of uh, uh, yeah. area. Uh, firstly, what we need is demonstrable leadership for leaders within those regulatory bodies, uh, within organisations themselves, to do the right thing and to focus on the right aspects and to be, uh, of course, there's a role there to support them in doing that. But there is a kind of a, a key aspect in terms of demonstrable leadership. The second aspect here is accountability, making sure that people that make decisions around disciplinaries or referrals are actually held to account for the decisions that they make. You know, what we see through the Workforce Race Equality Standard data is that black and minority ethnic staff are more likely to go through a formal disciplinary process compared to their white counterparts, very often in this, not only in the same organisation, but within the same department. We are closing down the gap in terms of that disproportionate um, experience that, uh, that we see. But there is a role here in terms of accountability and making sure that we have the right processes in place so that the processes are um, more inclusive. Um, some of the things that we've done over time, including, of course, a policy document um, called a fair experience for all within NHS England, is to set goals or to set targets for organisations in relation to uh, you know, reducing the gap between BME and white disciplinary cases. And we've outlined in that policy document what is it that you know, organisations can do to help support that endeavour. And that includes having diverse panels, that includes making sure that there is that level of accountability so people are held to account to the decisions that they actually make. And that's a, that's the internal accountability, but we also need external accountability as well that oversees and monitors the performance of the regulators yeah. in relation to this particular agenda. So there's a lot of work to be done, but there is kind of, um, I guess, early green shoots of hope around some of the focused support that we can provide, but also some of the outcomes that are now emerging from the data that we see. And we definitely do see green rays of hope and happiness coming forward through these changes that have been made. And you've said that correctly, that we do actually see something changing here. Now, you are working, obviously, with the King's Fund and you're doing, well, from what we've even heard now, you're doing fantastic work and you've got great aims and objectives with the Race and Health Observatory. But like we said, it's everybody's role. Yes, you are trying to make this difference, but how can people interact with yourselves to get involved and try and help get these aims and objectives out there? Because it does need to be something we all work collectively on. Yes, you're absolutely right. The intention and the ambition of the NHS Race and Health Observatory can only uh, be seen to be true if we work in collaboration with, with key stakeholders, with people in the system, from people beyond the NHS. And I encourage everyone to get involved with the work that we will be doing at the observatory. If they want to get in touch with myself, um, please do so. Um, and, you know, we all kind of have a role to play in making sure that our lives and the lives of future generations will be a lot better um, than, you know, what we've seen in the past. And, you know, that sounds grand, that sounds big. Of course it is, 
but you know we need to start with small steps um i would say but you know we're on the right road i'm positive you know as i've said uh, we all have a role to play i guess in narrowing that gap between you know the promise of our values in terms of equity in terms of inclusion and the reality of our time and the reality of our time is the disproportionate impact that we see in terms of COVID-19. The reality of our time is the disproportionate experiences and lack of opportunities that we see within the workplace. So there is a lot of work to be done, but I'm confident that we will be able to make a difference. And from all you've said so far, I think I'm very confident. I hope our listeners are as well. Now, you've mentioned, yes, the future generation small steps to help and make this change. And I know we've said to overcome health disparities, it's not just the NHS, it is local populations. It's also like you've got the local councils to help with housing, etc. Most of our listeners are healthcare professionals or the undergraduate, postgraduate students. What do you think are the key things that they need to keep in mind to help them in their journeys to support overcoming health disparities? Well, what I would say in terms of advice for healthcare professionals is something that I've mentioned, I guess, previously in this podcast, uh, a number of things. Firstly, to ensure that they champion equality, they champion inclusion and equity, they focus upon this agenda uh, with an open mind and an honest heart. They ensure that this agenda, like I've said before, is not just the burden for those that are most affected by it. Um, and they they forge forward with dedication, with persistency and consistency around doing the right thing. They are some very great tips and I hope our listeners have made a note of those and have some fantastic ideas. Now, I know you said people can get in contact with the Health and Race Observatory. As a director, you have a key role there. Can people directly email you? Are we okay to share your email with people to contact you if they have thoughts or ideas or contributions they'd like to make towards the Race and Health Observatory's journey towards overcoming these disparities? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Please feel free to email me personally at the Race and uh, Health Observatory. My email address is habib.nakvi at nhsconfed.org. I'm also on Twitter at Dr. H. Nakvi. So please do get in touch. Um, and um, I look forward to working in collaboration with you, know, with you and with key stakeholders going forward. And I guess what I'd like to end it on is, where do you hope if we get you back on this podcast in a few months or a year's time, what do you have in mind for one of the key things that you want to get done first? Well, the focus at the moment, Aisha, is absolutely on COVID-19 and the immediate impact, I guess, that is having on our diverse communities and healthcare staff. My focus is on you know kind of pulling the trigger on what we can do to make a positive impact right now and that includes protection of our staff that includes representation in terms of decision making that includes the protection of our communities and going forward i can see that we will have a lot of work to do in terms of ensuring that the vaccination is rolled out in a safe way and that is taken up Uh, by the diverse communities across the country as well. And I'm really hoping that we do see a change and with this positive thought process you have and this hope and ambition that you've got in making these changes, I do believe that your work will make a change much wider than actually even in the United Kingdom with you working with international researchers. So hopefully we could make a change globally from the work you're doing. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there will be international input into the observatory itself. And I hope over time we can have a kind of a global output from the observatory as well. But of course, as we've said before, small steps, one step at a time. And but, you know, I'm confident um, that, you know, this time we can begin to make real, meaningful and sustained changes on this critical agenda.
And I don't think there's a better place for us to have ended this on than, yes, if we all work together, these small steps will not just make a small impact, they can make a global impact for everybody and we can overcome these health disparities. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Dr. Nackby, and I am very grateful for you answering all my questions. I know I got in quite a few there to try and see if you'd hopefully answer them all, and you did, and I'm very grateful. Thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. and I hope our listeners can support us on our endeavour going forward. And hopefully we will have you on again soon and we can reflect on this episode and fingers crossed these small steps will have made changes by then. As always, thank you everybody for listening. Make sure you subscribe and share. And if you have any questions, please send us an email. I will include Dr. Nackby's contact details in the bio information below, as well as sharing it on Twitter and on our Instagram page. I hope you all keep well and until next time, take care.